You're listening to a Powetcast, an audio netcast from Powet TV. P O W E T dot TV. Chell it. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I highly recommend going back and listening to episodes one and two before continuing. Uh, otherwise, uh, let me reintroduce the Not Them production team Keith. Yeah. Colin. Sup. And Tom. Hi. So moving on again to fit the third, but first we should talk about a few things that happened last episode. One of the parts I think probably stood out to a lot of people was the improbability sequence, and it was sufficiently crazed. I felt like I was tripping when I was listening to it. I think we spent as much time as we spent editing the rest of the fit doing the improbability sequence. It was improbably long. I remember spending, seriously, just like a day of us, just you guys trying stuff me going, can we tone it back a little bit? <laughs> so you were the official dial it back guy. Yeah, I guess that's my title in this uh, particular fit. We decided we wanted some, I don't know, really bizarre background noises. And we thought that a good starting place for this would be to take a bunch of songs and just other things off of the CDs we had at our disposal and edit them together and put a whole bunch of effects over them. And that was just going to be the first step. But ripping a whole bunch of songs to the hard drive and then selecting parts of them and putting the effects over them took the better part of an evening. It took several hours longer than you would expect. And by the time we finished that, we had something that we felt was complete because we were so tired of working on it. But <laughs> in retrospect... I, I don't know if everybody feels this way, but I'm I'm kind of unhappy that you can identify individual songs, and I wish we'd done something else or come back to it at a different date. One of the things I noticed that I don't know if anyone else would have was the really the attention to detail and the sound effects. Like when Marvin first meets Ford and Arthur, um, it's preceded by "Glad to Be of Service." Yeah, we spent a lot of time working on stuff like that. Uh, it was actually pretty fun. I, it was one of the things about the audio production I really enjoyed doing. We hunted, spent a lot of time hunting through the internet, looking for the right sounds, and eventually just making our own because there really wasn't a big, well, you know, source for all that stuff. The BBC version of the show, they actually use several different things. The Doors actually talk, and they have a lot of different sayings that they use. In this one, we just used the same one over and over because we thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I wouldn't put too much stress on the fact that we downloaded a lot of sound effects from the internet because we probably created more of our own, especially things like um, footsteps down the hallway, that kind of thing. And we were really obsessive about having things in the background, like as in, in the first episode, as Ford and Arthur are being dragged along the corridor, we have that dragging sound and we make sure that the footsteps start just a fraction of a second before the dragging. And uh, we we tried to be really attentive as far as inserting sound effects at appropriate times, and I think we might have done a better job of that than the BBC version did. Uh, whenever they were in a ship, we had a background hum, because obviously the ship would be running and you'd be going through the quarters, you'd hear something. Uh, we had a background hum, and we worked hard to change it if they were in different ships or what, what they did. They had different sounds. Uh, we worked really hard at it, actually. It was... it's. We're probably obsessive compulsive. Yeah, we, we totally created that sound of the holodeck door closing in Star Trek. Yeah, that was us. Oh, I can tell. All right, so on to this week's episode, Fit the Third. Uh, we have yet another new character played by our friend Chris Sorensen. And I think his turn of slaughter Bart Fast is really fun, appropriately daft and unsure of himself. Well, that could have just been from, you know, his usual demeanor. We brought him in at a time when no one else was available. It was just me and him in the basement. We recorded his stuff, 
and then he went off and he did his uh, religious pilgrimage thing, and he was gone for two years. So he's never heard any of the final product at all. So this will be the first time he's heard it, wherever he is out there in the world. Yeah. Well, I guess he's back in town now. Oh, yeah, the one tell Byro the pen story. There's a bit of narration in this fit where we learn about one Viet Vujigig, a student who has an interesting theory about ballpoint pens. And in the original radio script, they are referred to as Byros. And I'm not sure if Byro is a brand name or a slang term or a brand name that became a colloquialism or what. But anyway, that's what some people in Britain call ballpoint pen. Needless to say, I changed that during when, I, when we went to script because I, I didn't even know what a bureau was for, for several years after first reading that. So I just kind of figured out it was a pen eventually. <laughs> well, if I may be unhost-like for a bit, I really feel like the Zaphod interplay works a lot better in this fit. Uh, examples range from speaking simultaneously to the two heads talking to different characters and even contradicting each other in what was otherwise the same sentence. We actually, I remember Caleb and I actually trying to split up the scripts because it hadn't been done for us. And then, Tom, you started doing I it. I started, that's why, part of the reason I think the interplay got a little better in Pit the Third, with <laughs> all due respect to you and Caleb. I started actually planning to do it ahead of time. So I go through the script, I go through the script ahead of time, and I pick the best lines. And we still did a fair amount of ad lib. And if, you know, Caleb had a particularly good delivery or you had a particularly good delivery, yeah. we'd switch lines. We'd just see how it went, basically. But I did try to actually lay down at least a base so uh, we'd have a good idea of how this, how everything was supposed to sound. Keith and I were allowed to edit the introductory narration without Tom being present for this episode. Oh and we added a ridiculous number of sound effects. And Keith and I are very, very pleased with the way this particular narration came out. Listen to the first narration. You'll see what I mean. I, I don't know how Tom feels about it, but we like it a lot. Why don't we ask him? He's right here. I am less pleased with the amount of sound effects in the narration. I was pretty much, as soon as I heard it afterwards, after I joined them, I'm like, wow. But it was too late at that point, so I pretty much rolled with it. <laughs> my, uh, my, my, my role as the tone it down guy just didn't, uh, didn't manifest very well in that particular section. <laughs> <laughs> we mispronounced a lot of stuff. Yes, yes <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, I was just, I was listening through it, and it's, at the time, I thought I was, you know, a hitchhiker expert because I'd read through the books multiple times. I'd listened to all this stuff, and we still got all this stuff wrong. And Yeah, the mispronunciations are kind of embarrassing, and I remember all three of us here, well... All four of us. I suppose, all four of us. All four of us here occasionally got into arguments with other people and occasionally each other as to how certain words were pronounced and probably in every single instance that we argued about pronunciation, we ended up with a mispronunciation, which, which is very embarrassing in retrospect. Uh, once again, I'd like to mention the original radio show, the recordings of the show were not available to us at the time. We couldn't afford real British actors, what can I tell you? I don't know. I, I don't think being not being British has anything to do with our apathetic pronunciation of machismo. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are both in the first fit, but anyway... <laughs> Now that you bring it up, I believe in uh, Fifth the Fourth, uh, Slaughter Bartfest says sacrilage. Although I, I, I think it's more, you know, a characteristic flourish than a mispronunciation, personally. <laughs> That's kind of what I think of when I hear it. I, I may or may not be right, but I'm going to pretend that he did that on purpose because, yeah, I don't know, it works. <laughs> So let us rejoin our heroes who have just found the legendary planet of Magarathea. 
As always, be sure to check out the show notes at Powet TV for any expansions, errors, omissions, or little furry creatures from Alpha Centauri. Enjoy. Us presents The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Fit the Third. After being rescued from certain death in a vacuum of space, Arthur Dent and his new companions now face a missile attack and certain death. Starring Craig Weber as Arthur Dent, Thomas Martinson as Ford Prefect, Christian Sorensen as Slotty Bartfast, Sean Corse and Caleb Gesslin as Zephod Bieberbrox, Alice Ecker as Trillian and the Whale, Colin Ganyu as the Book and Marvin, and Keith Everson as Eddie the Computer. Far back in the mists of ancient time, in the great and glorious days of the former galactic empire, life was wild, rich, and on the whole, tax-free. Mighty starships plied their way between exotic suns seeking adventure and reward amongst the furthest reaches of galactic space. In those days, spirits were brave, the stakes were high, men were real men, women were real women, and small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were real small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri. And all dared to brave unknown terrors, do mighty deeds, to boldly split infinitives that no man had split before, and thus the Empire was forged. Many men, of course, became extremely rich, but this was perfectly natural and nothing to be ashamed of because no one was really poor, at least no one worth speaking of. And for these extremely rich merchants, life eventually became rather dull, and it seemed that none of the worlds they settled on was entirely satisfactory. Either the climate wasn't quite right in the later part of the afternoon, or the day was a half an hour too long, or the sea was just the wrong shade of pink, and thus were created conditions for a staggering new form of industry custom-made luxury planet building. The home of this industry was the planet Magrathea, where vast hyperspatial engineering works were constructed to suck matter through white holes in space and form it into dream planets, lovingly made to meet the exacting standards of the galaxy's richest men. And so successful was this venture that very soon, Magrathea itself became the richest planet of all time, and the rest of the galaxy was reduced to abject poverty. And so the system broke down, the Empire collapsed, and a long, sullen silence settled over the galaxy, disturbed only by the pen-scratchings of scholars as they labored into the night over smug little treatises on the value of a planned political economy. Magrathia itself disappeared, and its memory soon passed into the obscurity of legend. In these enlightened days, of course, no one leaves a word of it. Meanwhile, on Zephyr Beeblebrox's ship, deep in the darkness of the Horsehead Nebula, I'm sorry, I just don't believe a word of it. Listen to me, fool. I found it. I swear I found it. Look, Megafear is a myth. A fairy story. It's what parents tell their kids about at night if they want them to grow up and become economists. It's... And we are currently in orbit around it. Zaphod, I cannot help but you personally may be in orbit around, but this ship... Computer. How... no... Hi there, this is Eddie, your shipboard computer, and I'm feeling just great, guys. And I know I'm just gonna get a bundle of kicks out of any program you care to run through me. Is this necessary? Computer, tell us again what our current trajectory is. A real pleasure, fella. We are currently in orbit at an altitude of 300 miles around the legendary planet of Magrathia. Golly! Proven nothing. I wouldn't trust that computer to speak my weight. I can do that for you, sure. No, thank you. 
I can even work out your personality problems to ten decimal places if it'll help. Zephod, we should have dawn coming up any minute now on this planet, whatever it turns out to be. Okay. Okay. Let's just take a look at it. Computer. Hi there, what can I- Just shut up and give us external vision on the monitors. Dim the lights on the bridge. There! The dark mass you see on the screens now is the planet of Magarathia. Or whatever. I wonder if Columbus had this trouble. Who? Sorry, just an esoteric Earth reference. He discovered a continent which went on to cause a bit of trouble. Arthur will tell you about it. Arthur? What? You've been very quiet, Arthur. Yes, I always find it very relaxing listening to other people arguing when I haven't a clue what they're talking about. The view's a bit dull, isn't it? Presumably it becomes absolutely enchanting later on. We are now traversing the night side. The surface of the planet is 300 miles below us. In a moment, we should see... There! The fires of dawn! The twin sons of Solianus and Ram. Or whatever. Solianus and Rom. Two ancient furnaces of light creeping over the black horizon. It's fantastic, you've got to admit that. It looks fantastic. Trisha, I feel I may be missing the point of something. Well, according to what Zaphod's told me, Magrathea is a legendary planet from way back, which no one seriously believes in. Bit like Atlantis, except that the legends say that the Magrathians used to manufacture planets. Is there any tea on the spaceship? Arthodent had basically assumed that he was the only native ape-descended Earthman to escape from the planet Earth when it was unexpectedly demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass because his only companion, disconcertingly called Ford Prefect, had already revealed himself to be from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice and not from Guildford after all. So when, against all conceivable probability, they were suddenly rescued from certain death in deep space by a stolen starship manned by two people, one of whom is Ford's semi-brother, the infamous Zaphod Beeblebrox, and the other of whom is Trisha McMillan, a rather nicely descended ape person that Arthur once met at a party in Islington, it could only be because the ship was powered by the new infinite improbability drive, which, of course, it was. Slowly, majestically, this mighty starship begins its long descent towards the surface of the ancient planet, which might or might not be Megathea. Well, even supposing it is... It is. Which it isn't, what do you want to do of it anyway? I mean, I take you're not here for the sheer industrial archaeology of it all. Uh, what is it that you're after? Well, it's partly the curiosity. Partly a sense of adventure. But mostly I think it's the payment money. It's just a dead planet. Oh, the suspense is killing me. Stress and nervous tension are now serious social problems in all parts of the galaxy, and it is in order that this situation should not be exacerbated in any way at all that the following facts will now be revealed in advance. First, the planet in question is in fact Magrathea. Second, the deadly nuclear missile attack shortly to be launched by an ancient automatic defense system will merely result in the bruising of somebody's upper arm and the untimely creation and sudden demise of a bowl of petunias and an innocent sperm whale. In order that some sense of mystery should still be preserved, no relation will yet be made concerning whose upper arm has been bruised. This fact may safely be made the subject of suspense, since it is of no significance whatsoever. Arthur's next question about the planet is very complex and difficult, and Zaphod's answer is wrong in every important respect. Is it safe? Magrathy has been dead for five million years, of course it's safe. 
Even the ghost will settle down to his family is by now. <laughs> What's that? Greetings to you. Computer! Hi there! What is it? Oh, just some five million year old tape recording that's been broadcast at us. This is a recorded announcement, as I'm afraid we're all out at the moment. The Commercial Council of Magrathia thanks you for your esteemed visit. But always from ancient Magrathia. Okay, okay. Closed for business. Thank you. If you would like to leave your name and a planet where you can be contacted, kindly speak when you hear the tone. They want to get rid of us. What do we do? It's just a recording. Keep going. Got that computer? I got it. We would like to assure you that as soon as our business is resumed, announcements will be made in all fashionable magazines and color supplements, when our clients will once again be able to select from all that's best in contemporary geography. Meanwhile, we thank our clients for their kind interest and would ask them to leave now. Well, I, I suppose we'd better be going then, hadn't we? Shh! There's absolutely nothing to be worried about. But why is everyone so tense? They're just interested. We keep going. It is most gratifying that your enthusiasm for our planet continues unabated, and so we would like to assure you that the guided missiles currently converging with your ship are part of a special service we extend to all our most enthusiastic clients. And the fully armed nuclear warheads are of course merely a courtesy detail. We look forward to your custom in future lives. Thank you. Listen, if that's their sales pitch, what must it be like in their complaints department? Hey, this is terrific. It means we really must be onto something if they're trying to kill us. Terrific. You mean there is someone down there after all? No. The whole defense system must be on automatic. But the question is why... But what are we going to do? Just keep cool. Is that all? No! no. We're also going to take evasive action. Computer, what evasive action can we take? Er, none I'm afraid, guys. Or something. There seems to be something jamming my guidance systems. Impact minus 30 seconds. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Please call me Eddie if it will help you relax. Right. Um, look, we got to get manual control of the ship. Can you fly her? No. Can you? No. Full? No. Fine. We'll, we'll do, do it, it together. together. I can't either. I, I guess, guess that. that. Computer. I want full manual control now. You got it! Good luck, guys! Impact minus 20 seconds. Okay, full. Full retro thrust and 10 degrees starboard. We're veering too fast! I can't hold her! She's going to do a spin! Dive! Dive! It is, of course, more or less at this point that one of our heroes sustains a slight bruise to the upper arm. This should be emphasized because, as has already been revealed, they escape otherwise completely unharmed, and the deadly nuclear missiles do not eventually hit the ship. Our hero's safety is absolutely assured. Impact minus 15 seconds, guys. The rockets are still humming in. You can't shake them. We're going to die. When you walk Shut the bloody computer up. Zaybot, can we stabilize the X00547 by splitting our flight path tangentially across the summit vector 9GX78 with a 5 degree inertial correction? What? Yes, I expect so. Just do it. God forgive me. Here we go! Hey! What'd you learn to stop like that, Charlie? Going around Hyde Park, corner on a moped. What? Hey. It's another Earth reference. Tell me later. It's no good, the missiles are swinging around after us and gaining fast. We're quite definitely going to die. 
Impact minus five seconds. Why doesn't anyone turn on this improbability drive thing? Don't be silly. You can't do that. Why not? There's nothing to lose at this stage. Does anyone know why Alpha can't turn on the improbability drive? Impact minus one second. It's been great knowing you guys. God bless. I said, does anyone know? Well, I was just saying that there's this switch here, you see, and... Where uh, are we, Trillian? Exactly where we were, I think. Then what's happened to the missiles? Uh, well, according to this screen, they just turned into a bull of petunias and a very surprised-looking whale. At an improbability factor of 8,767,128 to 1 against. Did you think of that, Earthman? Well, uh, all I did was... That's very good thinking. You know that? You just saved our lives. Oh, it was nothing, really. Oh, was it? Well, forget it. Okay, computer, take us into land. Well, I say it was nothing. I, I mean, obviously it was something. I was just trying to say it's not worth making too much of a fuss about. I mean, just saving everybody's life. Another thing that no one made too much fuss about was the fact that against all probability, a sperm whale had suddenly been called into existence some miles above the surface of an alien planet. Since this is not a naturally tenable position for a whale, this innocent creature had very little time to come to terms with its identity as a whale, before it had to come to terms with suddenly not being a whale anymore. This is what it thought as it fell. Ah, what's happening? Uh, excuse me, who am I? Hello? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? What do I mean by who am I? Calm down, get a grip now. Oh, this is an interesting sensation. What is it? It's sort of a yawning, tingling sensation in my, uh, my... Well, I suppose I'd better start finding names for things if I want to make any headway in what, for the sake of what I should call an argument, I should call the world. So let's call it my stomach. So, a yawning, tingling sensation in my stomach. Good. Oh, it's, it's getting quite strong. And, hey... What about this whistling, roaring sound going past what I'm suddenly going to call my head? Head. That sounds good. Yeah. Head. Good, solid ring to it. And the whistling, roaring sound, that can be wind. Is that a good name? It'll do. Perhaps I can find a better name for it later when I find out what it's for, because there certainly seems to be a hell of a lot of it. Hey, what's this thing? This... Let's call it a tail. Yeah. Tail. Hey, I can really thrash it about pretty good, can't I? Wow. Wow! Hey, doesn't seem to achieve much, but I'll probably find out what it's for later on. Now, have I built up any coherent picture of things yet? No. Oh, hey, this is really exciting. So much to find out about, so much to look forward to. I'm quite dizzy with anticipation. Or is it the wind? Hey, there really is a lot of that now, there isn't there. And wow, what's this thing suddenly coming towards me very fast? Very, very fast. So big and flat and wide, it, it needs a big, wide-sounding word, like round. Round. Ground! That's it. Ground. I wonder if it'll be friends with me. Curiously enough, the only thing that went through the mind of the bowl of petunias as it fell was Oh no, not again. 
Many people have speculated that if we knew exactly why the goal of Petunias had thought this, we would know a lot more about the nature of the universe than we do now. Meanwhile, the starship has landed on the surface of Magrathea, and Trillian is about to make one of the most important statements of her life. Its importance is not immediately recognized by her companions. Hey! My white mice have escaped! Nasty white mice. It is possible that Trillian's observation would have commanded greater attention had it been generally recognized that human beings were only the third most intelligent life forms on the planet Earth, instead of as was generally thought by most independent observers, the second. Okay, run atmospheric checks on the planets. Working! Are we taking this robot? Don't feel you have to take any notice of me, please. Oh, Marvin the paranoid android. Yeah, we'll take him. What are you supposed to do with a manically depressed robot? Oh, you think you've got problems. What are you supposed to do if you are a manically depressed robot? No, don't even try to answer that. I'm 50,000 times more intelligent than you, and even I don't know the answer. It gives me a headache just trying to think down to your level. Well, what's the result? It's okay, but it smells a bit. Okay, everybody, let's go. Good afternoon, boys! What's what's that? Oh, that's the computer. I discovered it had an emergency backup personality, which I thought might be marginally preferable. Now this is going to be your first day on a strange planet, so I want you all wrapped up snug and warm, and no playing with naughty bug-eyed monsters. I'm sorry. I think we could be better off with a slide rule. Right, who said that? Will you open up the exit hatch, please, computer? No, not until whoever said that owns up. Oh, God. Come on! Computer. I'm waiting! I can wait all day if necessary! Computer. If you don't open the exit hatch this moment, I should go straight to your major data banks with a very large axe and give you a reprogramming you'll never forget. Is that clear? Oh, I see this relationship is something we're going to have to work on. Thank you. That's good. It's all going to end in cheers. I know it. It's fantastic! It's a desolate hole if you ask me. It's bloody cold! It looks so dark and dreary! I think it's absolutely fantastic! It's only just getting through to me. A whole alien world, millions of light years from home! Pretty, it's such a dump though. Where's Zaphod? Hey! Just build this bridge against the remains of an ancient city! What does it look like? Bit of a dump, come on over! Oh, and what are all the bits of whale meat? Do you realize the robot can hum like Pink Floyd? What else can you do, Marvin? Rock and roll. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Any old way you choose it. It's got a backbeat, you can't lose it. Any old time you use it. It's got to be rock and roll music. If you want to dance. If you want to dance. I wish I knew where my white mice were. Okay, I found a way in. In? In what? Down to the interior of the planet. That's where we have to go. And no man has trolled these five million years into the very depths of time itself. Can it, Marvin? Why underground? Because everything is heavy there. Well, according to the legends, the Magrathians lived most of their lives underground. Why? Did the surface become too polluted or overpopulated? No, I think they just didn't like it very much. Zaphod, are you sure you know what you're doing? We've been attacked once already, you know. Look. I promise you, the live population of this planet is nil plus the four of us. And two white mice. And two white mice, if you insist. 
come on, let's go if we're going. Oh, hey. Earthman. Arthur. Could you sort of keep the robot with you and guard the center of the passageway, okay? Guard? From what? You just said there's no one here. Yeah, well, just for safety, okay? Whose? Yours or mine? Good man. Okay, here we go. Well, I hope you all have a really miserable time. Don't worry. They will. This is really spooky. Any idea what these strange symbols on the wall are, Zephyr? I think they're probably just strange symbols of some kind. Look at all these galleries of derelict equipment just lying about. Does anyone know what happened to this place in the end? Why did the Magnetherians die out? Something to do, I suppose. I wish I had two heads like yours, Zephyr. They could have hours of fun banging them together. Shine the torch over here. Well, we aren't the first beings to go down this corridor in five million years then. What do you mean? Look, fresh mouse droppings. Oh, I hate resistant pieces. What's that light down the corridor? It's just a torch reflection. This stuff must be worth millions, you know. Even if we don't find the actual money. It'll be there. Trust me. Trust you? Trust you? Zephard, old mate, I trust you about as far as I can comfortably remove your appendix. There's definitely something happening down there. No! Listen! The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a very unevenly edited book and contains many passages which simply seemed to its editors like a good idea at the time. One of these supposedly relates to the experiences of one Voot Vujigig, a quiet young student at the University of Maximegalon, who pursued a brilliant academic career studying ancient philology, transformational ethics, and the wave harmonic theory of historical perception. And then, after a night of drinking pan-galactic goggle blasters with Saphon Beeblebrocks, became increasingly obsessed with the problem of what had happened to all the pens he'd bought over the last few years. There followed a long period of painstaking research, during which he visited all the major centers of pen loss throughout the galaxy and eventually came up with a rather quaint little theory which quite caught the public imagination at the time. Somewhere in the cosmos, he said, along with all the planets inhabited by humanoids, reptiloids, fishoids, walking treeoids, and superintelligent shades of the color blue, there was also a planet entirely given over to pen life forms. And it was to this planet that unattended pens would make their way, slipping quietly through wormholes in space, to a world where they knew they could enjoy a uniquely penoid lifestyle, responding to highly pen-orientated stimuli, in fact, leading the pen equivalent of the good life. And as theories go, this was all very fine and pleasant, until Voot Vujigig suddenly claimed to have found this planet, and to have worked there for a while driving a limousine for a family of cheap green retractables, whereupon he was taken away, locked up, wrote a book, and was finally sent into tax exile, which is the usual fate reserved for those who are determined to make a fool of themselves in public. When one day an expedition was sent to the spatial coordinates that Voot Vujigig had claimed for this planet, they discovered only a small asteroid inhabited by a solitary old man, who claimed repeatedly that nothing was true, though he was later discovered to be lying. There did, however, remain the question both of the mysterious 60,000 Deltarian dollars paid yearly into his Brantisvogan bank account, and of course Zaphod Beeblebrox's highly profitable second-hand pen business. Meanwhile, on the surface of Magrathia, two suns have just set. Night's falling. Look, Robot, the stars are coming out. I know. Wretched, isn't it? But that sunset! I've never seen anything like it in my wildest dreams! 
The two suns. It was like mountains of fire boiling into space. I see it. It's rubbish. We never had the one sun at home. I came from a planet called Earth, you know. I know. You keep going on about it. It sounds awful. Oh, no. It was a beautiful place. Did it have oceans? Oh, yes. Great, wide, rolling blue oceans. Can't bear oceans. Ugh. Tell me, do you get on well with other robots? Hate them. Where are you going? I think I'll just take a short walk. Don't blame you. Good evening. Ah! Who? You'd choose a cold night to visit our dead planet. Who... Who are you? My name is not important. I, uh... You've... Startled me. Don't be alarmed. I will not harm you. But you shot at us. There were missiles. Merely an automatic system. Ancient computers ranged in the long caves deep in the bowels of the planet take away the dark millennia, and the ages hang heavy on their dusty databanks. I think that the occasional pot shot relieved the monotony. I'm a great fan of science, you know. Really? Oh, yes. Ah. Uh, uh. You seem ill at ease. Yes. No disrespect, but I gathered you were all dead. Dead? <laughs> no, we have but slept. Slept? Yes, through the economic recession, you see. What? Well, five million years ago, the galactic economy collapsed, and seeing the custom-built planets are something of a luxury commodity. You see, you know, we built planets, don't you? Well, yes, I sort of gathered. Fascinating trade. Doing the coastlines was always my favorite. I used to have endless fun doing all the little fitty bits and fjords. So, anyway, the recession came, so we decided to sleep through it. We just programmed the computers to revive us when it was all over. They were index-linked to the galactic stock market prices, you see, that we'd be revived when everybody else had rebuilt the economy, enough to be able to afford our rather expensive services again. Good God, that's a pretty unpleasant way to behave, isn't it? Is it? I'm sorry, I'm a bit out of touch. Is this robot yours? No, I'm mine. If you call it a robot, it's more sort of an electronic sulking machine. Bring it. What? You must come with me. Great things are afoot. You must come now, or you will be late. Late? What for? What is your name, human? Dent. Arthur Dent. Late, as in the late Dent Arthur Dent. It's a sort of threat, you see. Never been very good at them myself, but I'm told they can be terribly effective. All right. Where do we go? In my air car. We are going deep into the bowels of the planet, where even now our race is being revived from its five million year slumber. Magrathia awakens. Excuse me, uh, what is your name, by the way? My name is... do you really want to know? Well, yes. My name is Slotty Bartfast. Slotty Bartfast? Slotty Bartfast. I beg your pardon? Slotty Bartfast. Slotty Bartfast? I said it wasn't important. It is an important and popular fact that things are not always what they seem. For instance, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was more intelligent than dolphins because he had achieved so much. The Wheel, New York, Wars, and so on. Whilst all the dolphins had ever done was muck about in the water having a good time. But conversely, the dolphins believed themselves to be more intelligent than man for precisely the same reasons. 
Curiously enough, the dolphins had long known of the impending demolition of the Earth and had made many attempts to alert mankind to danger, but most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs and whistle for tidbits. So they eventually gave up and left Earth by their own means shortly before the Vogons arrived. The last ever dolphin message was misinterpreted as a surprisingly sophisticated attempt to do a double backwards somersault through a hoop whilst whistling a star-spangled banner, but in fact the message was this. So long, and thanks for all the fish. In fact, there was only one species on the planet more intelligent than dolphins, and they spent a lot of their time in behavioral research laboratories running around inside wheels and conducting frighteningly elegant and subtle experiments on man. The fact that man once again completely misinterpreted this relationship was entirely according to these creatures' plans. Arthur Dent's current favorite fact is that life is full of surprises. Welcome to our factory floor. Ah, the light! This is where we make most of our planets, you see. Does this mean you're starting it all up again now? No, no, for heaven's sake. The galaxy isn't nearly rich enough to support us yet. No, we've been all awakened to perform just one extraordinary commission. It may interest you. There, in the distance in front of us. You see? The Earth! Well, the Earth Mark II, in fact. It seems that the first one was demolished five minutes too early, and the most vital experiment was destroyed. There's been a terrible hoo-ha, and so we're going to make a copy from our original blueprints. You... are you saying you originally made the Earth? Oh, yes. Did you ever go to a place? I think it's called Norway. What? No. No, I didn't. Pity. That was one of mine. Won an award, you know. Lovely, crinkly edges. I can't take this! D did I hear you say the Earth was destroyed five minutes too early? Shocking cock-up. The mice were furious. Mice? Yes, the whole thing was their experiment, you see. A ten million year research program to find the ultimate question. Big job, you know. Look, would it save you all this bother if I just gave up and went mad right now? Has Slaughter Bartfast flipped his lid? Are Ford, Zaphod, and Trillian dying in fearful agony, or have they simply slipped out for a quick meal somewhere? Will Arthur Dent feel better with a good hot drink inside him? Find out in next week's exciting installment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm sorry, but I'd probably be able to cope better if I hadn't bruised my arm. Zephyr Bubelbrox is now appearing in No Sex Please were Amoeboid Zingat Olerians at the Transvagen Starhouse. That's all we have for this week. Fit the Third, produced by Not Them Productions, Colin Gagne, director Thomas Martinson, script supervisor Thomas Martinson, sound engineer Keith Everson, sound editor Colin Gagne, and final mix by Colin Gagne. This netcast produced and edited for Power TV by Sean Orange. Bandwidth and production assistance for this episode provided by That'sOrange.com. Join us next week with Tom, Keith, and Colin for Fit the Fourth. This will be the last of the completed batch of originally produced episodes. However, by next week, we are going to share with you some interesting news on this front, so stay tuned. And if you were put off by any possible mention of drug use during this episode, let Tom assure you... As improbable as it seems, nobody was actually on drugs when we created that sequence. See you next week. This is Sean Orange, signing off.